0: All right, hello and welcome back to Enterprise Linux Security. I'm here, as always, with Zhao. How you doing?
1: Um, I was going to lie if I said it was everything fine, but I have a bit of a cold, so sorry for any sniffles that might crop up during the recording. Um, as always, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Jay, and we have another fun, interesting episode today. Let's get on with the news.
0: Yeah, so actually, one thing I wanted to mention was the fact that some schools in Michigan were hit by a ransomware attack, and I don't really know anything about this, so I, I don't want to spend too much time on it. I just felt like it, it was a probably a good thing to mention because we hear about ransomware at other companies and things and in, in on this podcast, but sometimes it hits close to home. So my, my kids had three days off this week because they did, couldn't do anything. So, you know, when I was a kid, we had snow days. We didn't have a cybersecurity day. That wasn't something that we generally had off for school but they did. And it's just, you know, one of those things where I overhear people saying, yeah, maybe it'll be fixed by tomorrow. And I'm like, no, it's really not. And and the end of the week doesn't look so good either. I hate to say that. I'm not trying to put the sysadmins, you know, or question their abilities, but I know we know what the workload is like. and. The human condition and also you know the unpredictability of where the cruft or the pieces of the malware are in the system and how long it takes to find it and i just feel bad but it's just one of those weird things that just really puts into perspective that these these problems are not going to go away anytime soon if ever
1: yeah and they really hit home when it's something like that right um, right it's different than when you just read about it somewhere or just hear about it in the news. When it's something that you depend on, when it's, I don't know, critical infrastructure, like a school, for example, then, yeah, it really nails the point and drives the point home about how important and and critical, really, cybersecurity should be. And about that, fixing it by the the end of the week, absolutely not. Even if the the environment is really small and everything is backed up properly, just the backup restore time, it takes longer than that. So,
0: yeah. It really does. And and I know that um, from the news articles that are out, uh, you know, we don't know a lot. It's not because of not having read about it. It's just the information that they're putting out is few and far between. But. The articles basically state that the system administrators took the systems offline as soon as they detected what they um, claim or what was written as suspicious ransomware activity, which doesn't really tell me how widespread it is if it was just in a couple of systems and they caught it super quick then it's a lot easier than if it had time to spread before it gets into everything, then they have to take everything down. But it was saying that they took all systems down as a precaution to make yes. sure that it doesn't spread, which I think is a really great thing to do. So, um, you know, kudos to them for doing that. And hopefully they shut things down fast enough to where their uh, workload is, isn't is as heavy as it could be. But it's, uh, it's a different world now.
1: It absolutely. Is. <laughs> yeah. Again, yeah. when we were in school, we didn't have the issues like that to worry about. We had other issues, but not cybersecurity. Um, yeah,
0: I think the biggest technology concern that I had in school was whether or not the laptop cart was going to go into the um, you know classroom so we could actually see a computer in real life. <laughs> and now kids have Chromebooks and everything. It's just yeah. It's just crazy how different it is.
1: I actually remember those very old monochrome laptops that had yep. this, uh, it was yellowish phosphor monitor and the refresh rate, you could almost see the the pixels going out and in again and you could also see that in real time. It's weird yep. how much we've gone and all the issues that cro- that cropped up with that. I I
0: remember, I don't know what software this is. Well, I'll get off this tangent shortly. But the first time I ever saw communication between two people over the internet, um, and what it really looked, honestly, looked like was a black screen. I walked into the classroom and the teacher had us huddle over this uh, big computer screen. It's just a black screen with white text. So it looked like DOS and it probably was. And I saw some sentences scrolling across the screen. I'm like, what's going on? And it's like, well, there's a third grader that's, uh you know typing to uh you know there's a third grader at the keyboard and and i'm like they're typing to each other like you could do that like yeah it's happening right now you can see the tech i'm like whoa And all i remember is a black screen and white text with the characters going by and it was just so amazing and then now you know kids are using computers for school and we somewhat take them from for granted because they're practically disposable some of them
1: um so we better we, we better have, get uh, off from yeah. that tangent or we're gonna spend the whole episode just talking and reminiscing about old times.
0: Yeah, the reminiscing uh, episode. Uh, yeah. Um so the ongoing story of government policies and open source continues and um it's not like we fixate on this. We kinda do, but only because it's you know relevant, it's happening, yep. and we need to let people know about this because it, it's just it just keeps developing like we said it would be.
1: Yeah, it, it's relevant, and it's relevant both from a policy standpoint and it will how it will impact enterprises worldwide. Um, this, there is a thing here with, with government. It's usually the last one to, to act upon something new. So you have the developers that are working in the code. You have companies that realize the potential in the code and start using it for themselves. And then comes the policymakers that, because they can no longer ignore the issue, they have to deploy and create some policy around it. And this time it's um, the Senate introduced leg- a legislation, the, the US Senate um, in September called the Securing Open Source Software Act of 2022. Um, it establishes a series of guidelines to be implemented by CISA, and this is a recurring name that we usually bring up in the podcast, um, on how to deal with open source. They actually emphasize that it's really good uh, prevalent and it's widely spread and everybody's using it and it's good for the economy and all of that. And so they realize that there's an issue there. There's a security issue there. Um, And the thing is with open source projects done mostly by volunteers, there's actually not much you can legislate on the actual developer side, because if you start dropping too many regulations, if you start dropping too many requirements on the developers, they'll simply move away. Nobody's paying them to do that. So why are they going to to support that hassle? So what this legislation aims to do is to shift that burden to the the actual companies and the actual federal agencies that are using the software. This became more necessary because of something that we've talked before here in the podcast, which is the supply chain issues. We've talked about supply chain attacks, the different ways that um, the supply chain can be attacked and the different levels that it affects from development all the way to distribution to source code repositories, all of that. We've covered that in the past. Um, So this is basically a legislation that tries to frame all of that into something that's actionable. But um, I don't know if the lawmakers actually understand what they are trying to legislate here. And we were talking about this before we we hit the record button. Um, if you're listening to the podcast in a web browser, say Chrome, for example, if you go to settings, help and about, you're presented with this very nice window that, that talks about the, the software. We all know that it's based in Chromium. Itself an open source project, and then in addition to that, there's this link that says Chromium and these open source projects. If you click on that, you'll be presented with a list, and this is just for Chrome. That list includes 344 projects on the Chrome on Chrome's last version. Um, you'll have to fill out a lot of forms on each of those 344 projects, and this is just for the web browser alone. Okay, open source is a dependency in basically any software that you use today, from the operating system all the way to whatever utilities and services you're providing. For each and every one of those open source projects that you're relying upon, you'll have to fill out some paperwork, you'll have to create a detailed description, and we'll get into what the, the, the policy actually says that you need to cover. But there's a lot of things that you need to know about each of those projects.
0: Yeah, and there's a few, uh, actually a bunch of takeaways I want to, you know, actually talk about here. The the first is that I'm glad that developers themselves aren't being targeted. It, it's more for the companies and the software that they release or use. But if it was imposed on developers, I feel like that would be catastrophic, because then you would have college students that are less likely to start contributing to projects just because of filling out forms and whatnot, and it just becomes a hassle not that it's not a hassle for companies, too. Obviously, that's a lot of work, like you were saying. But, you know, I feel like that's a good place to put the burden because if if there has to be one, um, you know, volunteers will just quit, like we were um, kind of talking about before we hit the record button. But when it comes to understanding, the you know, what they're regulating here, you know, I, I, I'm interested to see that, too, to see how well they understand this. But some of the questions that the article mentions that are going to be a part of this, um, it kind of makes me feel good that they might be on the right track. So, for example, when it comes to libraries and things, um, or any open source project, one of the things that makes me nervous is when a project is quietly, basically abandoned. And um, when a project is quietly abandoned, if, if people aren't watching it, then it's not getting security updates, obviously, and, and they're just pulling it into their project, and then they might not be aware that there's a, a CVE that is now in their product because the open source library the, the person um, you know left, and we we kind of talk about this a lot, but as it you know, here's an actual real world situation that just happened, so it was literally this year, so. I know you're familiar with SSHFS because it's just one of those things that, you know, pretty much everyone that uses Linux for more than a year is aware of for the most part. And it's something I also cover in my book. But I had to scrub that section from the book, actually, because the project has been abandoned. The maintainer stepped down. And, and on the GitHub page, it basically says if you want to pick this up and become a maintainer of this, you can. But I didn't even know about this until I went looking for some additional information while I was researching for the book to find out what's different, because you do that kind of thing. And then I realized that it's just not there at all. And then of course, I've already recorded a video about it. So I had to edit the video and say, by the way, this isn't really maintained anymore. So don't put anything confidential, protected or anything like that, and share it via SSHFS. And, but the, the thing is this happens. And the questions that come up here, Uh, for example, who's been maintaining the code, are they active, and do the packages get regular updates? I feel like those first three questions are almost the same question, because if there's nobody maintaining it, it's asking who's maintaining the code. Well, if no one is maintaining it, then question two and question three are automatically a no. Um, So there's a little bit of an overlap there, but I do feel like we've come a long way where most of the politicians here in the United States understanding of technology is about uh, something about the fact that they still use MapQuest as a verb to this day. And we went from that to um, having actual relevant questions about open source software. So I'm not saying that we've hit a major milestone here, but it's promising.
1: <laughs> the, the science and technology minister in Japan had actually admitted that he never used a computer He's 83 or something like that. So wow. yeah, th- there's the thing. Um, and again, apologies for anybody in Japan if I wasn't accurate in that statement. I read something about that a few weeks back. I might be misremembering it. But it's somewhere around there. Um, so yeah, I believe that first question there is more aimed at: that uh, is there any enterprise backing the project? Mm. On the the question about who's been maintaining the code. It's, I believe from my take, and this is just my opinion, obviously, they are more interested in knowing if this is an individual effort or if there is some coordinated effort by some companies, if there's some major backers of the project, because companies like, say, Google or Microsoft or something like that are actually learning that they need to support some projects that they depend upon. Um, there is this uh, great XKCD comic that I always go back to, which uh, accurately depicts the state of open source, which is um, this tower of building blocks, and then at the bottom, there is one critical building block that's been maintained by one single developer that's never been paid since 2003 or something like that. And if that crumbles, the whole tower crumbles. And it's more or less what they are trying to gather here. I Um, think
0: one thing that's really funny here is, you know, when I first started, and and probably the same for you, I, I imagine... Um, the, the fact that apt could do dependency resolution was amazing because just having to install RPMs and then have an error yeah. message, oh, it requires this, so you install that package... Or at least you try to, but that one so requires true. another one. Next thing you know, you have like a folder full of RPMs that you know are, are re, you know required. And then you do like RPM-I star to install everything in the folder because you know what's required. Um, and, the, and, you know, the dependency hell is what we called that. Yep. Now it's like the companies are going to deal with dependency hell. And it's not installing the, the dependencies. It's, you know, actually keeping an inventory of all of them, which is probably even going to be more work.
1: Absolutely. And (laughs) this ties into the the Software Bill of Materials, which is something that this bill will actually incorporate and enforce. Um, Having a a list of all the software that you depend upon and having that written down and updated it with each new version, that's something really critical. We've talked about the importance of this, Um, not just because of the information that you can gather from it uh, around updates that you need and all of that, but also because it standardizes the the process. It's no longer just company A reporting uh, rather than an itemized list of everything that's necessary with specific versions and then a company on the other side of the planet doing it differently. Um, It provides you with a framework that you can actually follow for everybody and you can expect it to be in that format from everywhere that you get it from. Um, That lets you create automation tools. That lets you create scripts, at least. That's checking that whenever you're pulling the dependencies. So at the very least, the standardization that this will bring to the table is beneficial.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and there was something that um, I also wanted to bring up. I, I feel like it, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I, I, you know, like like we were talking earlier, um, we pretty much agree that um, there could be some, you know. In, like, I want to say some frustrations around this, but it, it's more good than harm. It's actually a very good thing to have. But um, one thing to kind of consider, too, is that uh, vulnerability chaining might get a little easier, and that makes me a little worried. Now, with a vulnerability chain, imagine a scenario, for those of you that haven't heard previous episodes, where a threat actor gets into a system and they log in to a to an account and they're on the system but that account is completely useless. Let's just say it has no ability to execute anything. It um, is in a CH root or something. I don't know. It's just, you know, let's just assume the sysadmin did a really good job here. And there's nothing that that threat actor can do because even though they're in the system, they have no privileges. But then another CVE on the system could then allow them to get, you know, higher access and then more access and then more access. What you're hoping is that if, if the threat actor does get in, they can't do anything um, and that's it. But usually what happens is they look for other vulnerabilities that could escalate their privileges. So when they see a software bill of materials, then my worry becomes, OK, I want to hack this particular application or this server, and it's using these things. So now I don't even have to do as much scanning at this point. I could just look at everything on there and look for vulnerabilities on each of those things and have a good idea of what could work. And that might make that a little bit easier in my opinion, but then again, I think it's absolutely a great thing to have because it's definitely going to be more good than it is going to cause harm.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that. But it's uh, again, it's a matter of weighing the pros and the cons here and having that software bill of material has more benefits, at least that we know of, that we've considered so far. Um, One interesting thing, when you were talking about uh, uh, chaining vulnerabilities, Um, I guess this is public knowledge. I work at TuxCare. we do live patching there. Uh, We have a live patching product. Just this week, I was creating some content around um, um, something not related to live patching called virtual patching, where the idea is that at the firewall level, and this isn't a product of ours, so I'm not promoting anything here. with virtual patching, the, the idea is that at the firewall level, you have some kind of intelligence that checks the, the patterns in the communications or checks for signatures. And if they detect an attack pattern, they will block the communication. And so they, they promote that the company is selling this type of things as being a form of patching. You no longer need to actually patch the system, you're blocking this, the, the vulnerabilities coming into the network. Um, the thing there is that, If you have a new threat, if you have something that changes that signature, then everything goes down the drain and it will not protect you. And on the other hand, as you were saying, if somehow you already have remote access, then it will not cover an escalation. It will not cover you chaining another vulnerability because you're already in the system. You're no longer passing through the firewall. Um, yep. so yeah, it's also related to what you were saying there. That's why I made a, I made this tangent here. That's a um, very
0: good point. Yeah, for sure.
1: Um, okay, but looking in more detail at the actual bill, um, and we will provide the link for that in the description, um, it has provisions and, uh, by the way, CISA will be managing this. CISA is the, the agency responsible for actually implementing some of this. Um, and I would just like to cover some of the points in the actual bill. So Mm -hmm. how does the the framework actually look? And the the idea here is that no later than one year after this bill goes into effect, so this can be expected to happen next year um, when it's actually starting to be enforced. um, The idea is that for each open source project that you rely upon on your company that you're using, you need to identify the security properties of the code. What they mean here is that they want to understand if the the software that you're pulling in is written in a memory-safe language or is written in something that, say, for example, doesn't let you actually rely on pointers directly. So the idea is avoiding C and C++ immediately. This ties into a a separate requirement that came out like... uh, the week before as the time that we are recording this, like one week ago or something like that, I can't recall if it was CISO or if it was the NSA that uh, recommended that developers abandoned memory and safe languages like C and C++ and started developing, say in Rust or C Sharp or something like that, which avoid the memory issues. And the memory issues are at the core of a great many number of vulnerabilities out there. The buffer under- underflows, the buffer overflows, the um, corruptions, reading and, and privileged memory, all of those depend on you having code that directly handles the, the memory positions. Um, so not coding in a language that lets you do that will make it avoid avoid those problems. So what they intend to, to do here when, the, when you are asked to, to identify if the language is is memory safe or not, is to actually say, okay, this project that I'm pulling in is written in C, in C++, or in a memory safe language, okay? The the idea being that you want it to be memory safe, so to avoid all of those issues immediately. Now, (laughs) applying this in retrospect, there's a really large number of projects out there written in C. From the top right. of my mind, say the Linux kernel, for example. So if you right. have Linux systems in your infrastructure, all of them are running the kernel, all of them are, run, are written in C. Um, so they will immediately be flagged in something like this.
0: Yep, that would be a, a, like astronomical, <laughs> to put it lightly, task to even, <laughs> even think about converting it, let alone actually do it. Yeah.
1: So they also want you to identify the the security measures that are being taken by each of the projects that you rely upon. Say, if the developers are using multi-factor authentication, if the developers are signing the, the releases with certificates that are valid, all of those nice things. Again, going back to the Chrome example, that's 344 dependencies where you need to check all of those things. I assume that Chrome being made by Google, they will have a different page in the about information where you can see, okay, this to comply with this framework, we have all that information compiled here. I expect most applications will start doing that and start having a page like that. Because if you need to go by hand, do that on each and every project, I wouldn't want to be that IT guy.
0: That would be a job that would require a lot of coffee. Like a ginormous <laughs> amount of coffee, like like entire like gallons of coffee. Give me all the coffee to get this done, oh my gosh, I can't even imagine.
1: I can see this being the new intern task, but <laughs> that's
0: just me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i wish you were wrong (laughs) but unfortunately it's really hard to refute that because i know how things generally go i'm not laughing because i you know i'm laughing any anyone's unfortunate it's just you know very ironic um that's how it it normally goes. it's
1: been there then that situation so yeah
0: yeah it's also the case i mean there's dependencies of dependencies of dependencies going back to dependency hell you know because it's not just one layer of dependencies because you could have like five dependencies that in each one of them could could pull in two or three dependencies themselves and those dependencies will have dependencies. So I, I think that's going to be probably the most tedious part for whoever has to keep track of this for their company.
1: And this is where I, I go back to what I said before about not knowing if the, the lawmakers actually understand what they're asking. Um, if you have to follow through all of those dependencies at the end of the day you're going to have to shift the, the responsibility of creating this list from the company back to the developers to the open source developers themselves because they will provide that information so that companies can actually use their projects so the initial idea of actually shifting this to the companies to avoid overburdening the, the developers might backfire and the developers will have to provide this themselves as well um,
0: that might be this. a really great thing because if they're asked to do this, they're going to automate it. They're going to like have some kind of a, a script that's going to look at the last update on GitHub and scrape that in there. Um, once they have that information, they're going to get the version numbers and they're just going to have like some kind of automation where they're going to, I, I guarantee this is going to happen because you tell, ask any developer or even a DevOps person to do work like that. They're, they'll have it automated by the end of the week. But then again, I'm not trying to, to minimize the impact here. It is a lot of work, and it is a de, you know deterrence from what people are normally working on.
1: And there will be a new market for new applications to check it. So, yep, um, I
0: guarantee you, I'll see ads for that within a year.
1: Okay, moving to the next point in the in the lawmaker's description of what they actually went. Um, another interesting thing that they require is the number and severity of publicly known and patched vulnerabilities for a specific project. Um, that's amazing information if you're a malicious threat actor. <laughs> so they are immediately telling you, "Okay, I have so many publicly yeah. known vulnerabilities. Just come and exploit them."
0: Yeah, it's like a bullseye painted right on your company inside yeah. of your company's wall. I mean.
1: I understand why they're asking this, but come on, <laughs> this is like a shopping list for an attacker. Then they want to understand the breadth of deployment of a given open source component. Um, I don't understand if they want this to, to realize how many instances of it you're using it internally, or how, f- how many instances there are globally everywhere from a specific project, if it's widely used or not. Um, I would assume if it's something like Chromium, it's everywhere, basically. Whenever there's a web browser, whenever there's Chrome or Edge or something like that, then there's Chromium. But I don't think that's what they want. They want to know internally how many instances you have of it.
0: Makes sense, yeah.
1: Again, it's going to be a terrible number for some of the, the open source components. And There's something that we haven't mentioned yet. Some projects will use open source and not acknowledge it um curl right. for example isn't listed in many of the projects that use it and it's everywhere
0: yeah and uh, any other comp- you know open source component of the distribution as well um i mean there's all there. there's i guess the question is how deep are they going going to want us to go you know that that's the question that i, I think we'll need to know and we'll, we'll need more information before we have a final opinion on anything there's some promising areas, and there's also some um, question marks that we have that we aren't aware of yet, and we'll need to know as, as this starts to mature before um, we can have a general opinion. But there's always a lot to unpack every time this updates.
1: Yeah. The the last point that I want to make here is that um, they also wanted to know about the health of the community around the project. That's actually very interesting. That shows that hmm. at least they understand somewhat about open source. If you have a project that has a buzz factor of one or two, the bus factor being the number of people that can die and the project still survive. If you have a project with a bus factor of one or two, that's not very healthy. The problem is those types of projects are 98% of all the projects in GitHub at the moment, for example. That's a tremendous percentage of projects that are going to be unhealthy in their view. So I don't know how they're going to weigh that, how that's going to factor in. But if that's the metric that they go by, then you're going to be at risk from many different places that you're not expecting.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting that interesting sign of the times that the government is getting involved in um, open source related policies. Um, Without going too far on an aside, um, if they're going through this level of scrutiny about this can we get a few laws about like handset manufacturers having to release updates to phones for at least four years and make that required like for every vendor i, I know that's probably not going to be like something everyone is going to agree with but you know th- there's some other security things we need some attention on too so i hope that they kind of add some of the other pain points to scrutinize that too because we you know can't seem to get updates for some phones half the time. Funny so, that you mentioned that. Yeah.
1: Android is open source. So Android oh, yeah, will be right. covered by this. All the dependencies of Android will have to be covered by this. It's interesting to see how Google is going to respond to this policy.
0: Well, I don't know. It's like Google, how Google responds or how like LG and all the other manufacturers respond. Because... Um, isn't it I haven't used Android in a while, but isn't it the case that the pixel phones are generally okay with updates and it's like the other ones that are problematic or is that has that changed?
1: I don't have much experience with the pixel ones. I usually use Samsung, but that's just me mm-hmm. um and I do get updates frequently um that, well, that's said, thing. that said um this is more encompassing than that um it will cover everything basically
0: right. Yeah. Well, uh, I do hope that we get a lot of, um, you know, benefit from this, but it's one of those things that um, I'm sure we'll talk about at least one more time, probably two or three more times because it's developing. Um, well, we won't make the entire podcast about it, but we do have to make people aware of this. So um, we'll need to make sure that um, people are aware of what's coming. Yep.
1: Yeah. Sorry muted. We're going to cover it when it's announced, when it gets into yep. effect, and probably when it gets revoked because nobody's going to follow it, but that's just me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: nobody's going to be oppositional towards this at all. Everyone's going to love it. What are you talking about? No yeah. one's oppositional about policy well, of course, <laughs> yes they are quite a bit actually um it, it's, it's, there's going to be a lot of people that are loud about it, but we all we know how it's going to go.
1: yeah. Um, so we don't want to bother people with too many legalese compa- um, talk here in right. the in the podcast, but this was just too interesting and too on point to the on the podcast for us to ignore completely. So yeah, yeah, I guess we covered the the factors that most affect the, um, the policy regarding open source. All the rest is more about organization and who is handling what. So. Yeah, it's really interesting to see the the U.S. government actually taking software security more seriously. We've seen right. that with recent CISA mandates and with the with the cybersecurity laws that are coming out. It's very, very interesting that this is getting the the attention that it's due.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad for that for sure. So, yeah, I think that's our topic. And you need to rest because I know you're not feeling well, and I don't want to drag this on and have you take longer to recover your voice but i really appreciate you uh you know still doing the podcast it was awesome as usual and um yeah that's our topic
1: it was a pleasure as usual (laughs) so thank you everybody for listening it was a pleasure and until the next one